Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Something to Talk About. I'm your host, Randy Wartelski, and I thank you for joining us here at the Nahum Siegel Network. We're here every Thursday starting at 3 p.m. giving you something to talk about. Today we're talking about reaching out to your fellow Jew, how one person can make a difference in the lives of others near and far, very, very far in some cases. As in the case of our first guest today, or shall I say guests, as our discussion begins in San Diego and ends in Afghanistan. In just a few minutes, you'll meet Navy Lieutenant Commander Rabbi Neil Chrysler and Community Leader Ari Wirth, who will tell you how they came to build a sukkah in Afghanistan. And later in the show, you'll meet one woman who's inspiring a generation of future leaders by teaching them what they can do to bring the global Jewish community just a little bit closer. Ms. Didi Benel has taken students all over the country, including New Orleans, and she'll tell you what she and her students did in Whitwell, Tennessee, and how she got the opportunity for her students to meet Gilad Shalit and his army platoon. But first, we begin with two men and an idea. In the days following a deadly Taliban attack on a U.S. airbase in Afghanistan, soldiers sat down to celebrate sukkahs in a made-for-them sukkah right there on the base. And that was thanks to two people. I welcome Navy Lieutenant Commander Rabbi Neil Chrysler, who joins us via telephone from San Diego, and Community Leader Ari Wirth, who's here live in our studio. Ari Wirth is also the chairman of the advisory board of the Aish Center, creator of the YouTube Torah channel, and an editorial contributor to AMI magazine. Rabbi Chrysler, I'll begin with you. Thanks so much for joining us. And let me ask you, how did it come about that you were to bring a sukkah to Afghanistan? Well, the story is as follows. Several months ago, I received a tasking from 1st Marine Expeditionary Force forward for a rabbi to be in theater in Afghanistan to conduct High Holy Day services. thought occurred to me, if I'm going to be there for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I might as well stay through Sukkot Shemini Yatzeret. But to do so, I'm going to need a sukkah. Now, I've been to Afghanistan before on similar missions, so I know what it's like there. And my, I felt the best option we had was to, was to procure a prefabricated sukkah, a portable kind that you can, that you can erect. And uh, that's, that's what happened through a, a sort of convoluted uh, means, but we ended up getting a sukkah shipped to Afghanistan. To my knowledge, this is the first time we had a kosher sukkah in Helmand province for Sukkot in Afghanistan. Was that your first time on an army base for sukkahs? Well, it's actually not an army base. I, I received orders to Regional Command Southwest, uh -huh. which is located in Helmand province. It's primarily a Marine Corps base. There's also, there are also NATO forces there, and there's a British base, Camp Bastion, right nearby, which is where the attack, the terrible attack of September 14th occurred. But it's primarily United States Marines and sailors. And you led the High Holiday Services. That is correct. Now, the High Holy Day Services, I was in a different location in Kandahar province at a Ford operating base by the name of Kandahar Airfield. Most of the people there were Army. They were soldiers. And you then traveled to Camp Leatherneck, is that, that is correct? correct? And uh, after a, an attack had just taken place, some $200 million worth of aircraft attack jets took the lives of two American servicemen. Here you arrive. 
And how much before Sukkot was that? Well, I was um, I arrived several about two days before Yom Kippur. So I conducted Yom Kippur services at Camp Leatherneck, and of course Sukkot uh, immediately followed thereafter. And this was indeed immediately after a a terrible raid conducted by the bad guys. So everyone was on high alert. Right. And how how did you? How much before Sukkot were you able to actually get the Sukkah there? <laughs> well, the Sukkah arrived before Rosh Hashanah. The problem is, when we began to set up the Sukkah the day after Yom Kippur, we discovered one box was missing. And this was a box full of essential accessories required to put up the Sukkah. So immediately, you know, we're military, so we go into Plan B immediately. And that was to... Conf- talk to the Seabees, the Navy Mobile Construction Battalion, and have them construct us the parts, which right. is well, what you we guys, did. Well, you know how to build things. Well, they know how to build things. <laughs> See, Seabees are, it's the Navy construction engineers, so they, they pretty much uh, uh, responded to my request immediately and had the items created for us within by the end of the day. And how do you explain to the Seabees exactly what you need? You've got to get into the halachot of, of building a sukkah <laughs> That's a very interesting question. In fact, I sort of did. First of all, everyone knew there was going to be a rabbi out there. So in the military, people kind of know what, what, what the Jewish ways are, because the year, the seasons, the holidays always occur, and, and the rabbi comes through. However, they were extremely, the CVs were extremely pleasant, extremely understanding, and they listened to what I described to them, told them what I needed, and they understood, and they got it going. So as soon as we got the defanot, they built us walls out of plywood, beautiful walls. As soon as we got them constructed, we're about to cart them away, and this CB, a sailor, walks by and says, is this a sukkah? Wow. Is this for a sukkah? I said, that's right, petty officer. And sure enough, this Jewish guy, a Jewish sailor, and he was one of our steadfast participants throughout the holiday sequence, enjoying the sukkah and waving the arba minim. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's haska pratit, absolutely. That, that, that's pretty amazing. I, I'm going to turn now to uh, Ari Wirth. Ari, how did you get involved in the sukkah project? Well, first let me say that, you know, the, the real hero of the story is, is uh, Rabbi Chrysler, who, uh, you know, I think that why this story is really being talked about so much in the Jewish world right now. There's an article on H.com and uh, there's an article in the Yeshiva World News newspaper. We've we've done a couple of radio shows. Uh, that's because this is a story not only about sukkah, but real about sukkahs and a sukkah in a war zone. But it's a story about uh, how uh, far one person, Rabbi Chrysler, uh, went to to do this mitzvah uh, for for Jews who really needed needed him in Afghanistan. And uh, I call it the most dangerous sukkah in the world. You know, where have you ever heard of a, of a sukkah being built where the builder of the sukkah is has a bodyguard carrying an M16? That, you know, that was Rabbi Chrysler's situation over there. Um, so yeah, I, Rabbi Chrysler, would you agree? Would you call that the most dangerous sukkah in the world? Well, um, we were in a, in a war zone, and it was pretty dicey. I will say that I lived in Israel for 10 years. Even there, I never had such a dicey situation, a situation with such potential threat as I had this time in Afghanistan. It, everyone was on high alert, and I had a bodyguard with me who was my shadow, he was armed to the teeth, and he was with me pretty much all the time and standing guard during services. So you have this idea, and, and, and Ari, how did you guys connect to each other? 
Well, that's the other part of the story. It's you know I think what what uh, what this story represents is also a story of pe- of Jews coming together uh, for for a community need. Um, I got an email from uh, Rabbi Fischel Todd of Lakewood, who's the founder of uh, Perchei Shoshanim, which is an organization that does a number of things. One of them is that they uh, provide uh, training and uh, endorsement for uh, for Orthodox uh, rabbis to become. Uh, military chaplains. Okay, let's go back a step to Rabbi Chrysler. How do you put in a request to somebody that you want to build a sukkah? How does that happen? What are the... the... We didn't have a sukkah, so we had to procure the item. There are strict rules determining that stipulate how uh, how such necessary items can be acquired in the military. So I would imagine I bet... you need a lot of clearance. We need... Well, we had to go to legal. I went, I went to the legal officer, told him we need this particular ecclesiastical item. And the legal officer explained to me how to, to, to do this legally. And it involved paperwork. And ultimately, the sukkah was gifted by Pirche Shoshanim to the Marine Corps. Okay. And that's how we ended up acquiring the, the item and having it shipped into theater. Okay, so Ari, so, so we're at Pirche Shoshanim. Right, right. So, uh, so Rabbi Todd's email said... Rabbi Christ was going to Afghanistan and he needs a sukkah, and I just jumped at the opportunity because uh, when we when we when we want to uh, you know to help in the community, want our priority is to look for sort of what we call pioneering mitzvahs, mitzvahs that are uh, going to be brought to a place or or to a person who who normally wouldn't get that mitzvah without without the help. And so this was a perfect example. You can't get more unique than uh, providing a sukkah for Jewish Marines in Afghanistan. Uh, so that's what we did. We worked with Perkei Shoshanim to get the sukkah uh, gifted to the Marines. Uh, and then very, uh, I think it's an interesting aspect of the story, how the, the military actually uh, then uh, came in and, and took up the rest of the mission. And, you know, this sukkah was, was airlifted by the U.S. Air Force from San Diego all the way to Afghanistan. And then, as, as Rabbi Chrysler mentioned, the CBs came, came along to help build, uh, you know, uh, create those missing parts when, uh, when the Rabbi Chrysler realized they were missing. So I think it's... And how far were you able to sort of track the story? So, you know, you, you helped procure the sukkah. Then were you in touch with the organization? Were you in touch with... How did, how did you know how it all ended? Well, I, 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 got, I received some updates from, uh, from Rabbi uh, Fischl Todd. So I, I knew that things were going well. Um, and Rabbi Chrysler, you were in touch with Rabbi Todd? That's correct. I kept... Uh, he's my endorser, so I kept him updated as to the progress of the sukkah and the holidays. Sent him photos, so he he knew what was going on. I do want to uh, clarify that while the CBs built us basically a, a sukkah, we didn't use it. We used it. It was standing by as an emergency, but the on erev Sukkot we actually found that missing box. Oh, wow. So we were able to put up the portable sukkah that we ordered, which is a beautiful 10 by 10 foot sukkah with lovely bamboo schach. We managed to get it up and I was dancing inside it when we put that thing up on Air Sukkot. I was so happy. <laughs> and how many Marines did you service in this sukkah? All in all, throughout all the holidays, we had over 100 Jewish personnel. But understand, some of these were the same folks that kept on coming to the services. We're a minority, as you know. Jews are a minority anywhere. However, everywhere that I go, in my capacity as a military chaplain, I encounter Jewish personnel who are, for the most part, thrilled to see a rabbi, especially in a war zone. And we had about 10 Jewish folks out at Camp Leatherneck. And it was a, it was a real nice community. I need to, I'd like to tell you the effect this sukkah had 
on the folks who used it. Please. Here we are in Afghanistan, Helmand province, and it's pretty much dust and everywhere. On a clear day, you can see mountains, and everything there is gray, shades of gray, black, drab. And we built a sukkah with white, white dafanot and green bamboo sach. And when you stepped inside that sukkah, you were in a place of protection and light and joy. And the Jewish Marines and sailors who sat in that sukkah, and we, we did kiddush, we ate in the sukkah, we, we waved the Arab minim, they were beside themselves with joy. I kid you not. One said to me, Rabbi, how did you, how did you get this stuff out here? They were just amazed. It was so wonderful to see this, re, this beautiful reaction that the, that the Jews were having out there. It's it sounds, so important. It sounds like you were able to bring that same feeling that perhaps the Bnei Israel were experiencing. Well, you know, we talk about Ananei Kavod. Let me tell you, it's real. And were there people who came to the sukkah who weren't Jewish? Did they ask you any questions? The, what, was, what was that experience like for the non-Jewish Marines? The commanding general of the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing you know, I spoke cigars with him a couple of times. He was really interested in the sukkah, and they were tracking the, the, the upper, the, the command was tracking my progress because it's an important thing to get the rabbi out there for religious accommodation. And Navy Marine Corps is very concerned with proper religious accommodation, First Amendment rights, freedom of religion. That's a lot of the reason why we're out there fighting. So everyone was interested and in asking questions. Primarily, it had Jewish guys coming by to use the sukkah. I just want to jump in and add something. Uh, you know, the rabbi's mission was challenging enough just going to a war zone, but something tr very tragic happened, and we just mentioned briefly, but I want to, I want to bring it out a little bit more. Um, a, um, a few days before Rabbi Chrysler was scheduled to, to return to Camp Leatherneck, something tragic happened. Taliban terrorists dressed as U.S. military personnel uh, got into the base, and they were able to wreak havoc. They destroyed the jets, as you mentioned. They killed two airmen. And, and so the, the, the mood on the base uh, was even more tense than usual. Uh, in addition to that, when Rabbi Kreiser was uh, in Kandahar, I'll let him tell you the story of what happened in Kandahar during the, the Rosh Hashanah services. Rabbi, do you want to? Sure. Yeah. Kandahar Airfield. <laughs> we kept on getting rocket attacks over there. And... I was in Israel during the Gulf War, so I remember the rocket attacks, but here it was again, and those sirens go off, and they went off a lot at the time. So there was a procedure when, those, when the rocket attack happened, and sure enough, second day, Rosh Hashanah Musaf attack, the rocket attack happens, so we finished davening Musaf in a bunker, which was a first for me, and there was quite a way to kind of finish off Rosh Hashanah, but that's... That's the kind of place where you are. That's Kandahar Airfield. Yeah, you know, there, there are a lot of rabbis in America who feel like they're under attack by their congregants, but in this case, this rabbi really was under attack. Yeah, I, I don't have to worry about uh, pulpit politics out there, <laughs> but the, the rockets were kind of nasty. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Rabbi, and, and post your, hearing your Rosh Hashanah story, it's, it's really incredible. What was Yontif in general like for you over there? I mean, America. you know, you're leaving your home, you're leaving your family— you're going really far away. Uh, All what, right. what was that like for you? 
Very good question. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to address it because it's very important. In the last, I think, five years, I don't think I've spent more than one holiday home with my family. So I thought about this towards the end of the mission in Afghanistan this year. I thought about this, and this is the conclusion I came to. If I had stayed at home and not been ordered on this mission, it would have been nice with my family. It would have been nice. But it wouldn't have been doing anything. Now I had the opportunity in Afghanistan to do something, to do something that was needed, because the Jews out there didn't have anyone. They didn't have anything. So, you know, it was Zahut. I was able to bring the Sukkah, the Abraminim, the, the, the Mahsrim. I was able to bring this to them, and I did something. And what do you think you left with the Marines? Well, I, I you know, can't speak for them, but I will tell you that in my heart, I, I have now a lot more friendship. I, I intend on keeping in touch with these Marines, and we're hoping to sustain a revitalized Jewish community, which occurred in Afghanistan, uh, so that they'll continue to meet for Shabbat services. And Is there a way for you to keep in touch with them? Oh, absolutely. Email. We're all on the uh, military uh, distribution list. They're, wonder they're wonderful folks, and, you know, everyone's, everyone's at a different level of observance. Some of, some of the guys were from, and some were not as from, but they remember the sukkah when they shared it with their families at home, and the effect it had was of inestimable value. Yeah, I, I commend you for being able to bring that feeling to so many of our, of our servicemen overseas. I want to know what happened to the sukkah now? What, what happened? It hasn't been taken down yet, because I know a lot of people where I live who haven't yet taken down their sukkahs. My sergeant and I took down the sukkah the day after, and we had it shipped. It will be shipped back to the States, where it will be property of Marine Aircraft Group 11, which is the unit for which I am the chaplain here in San Diego. And it will belong to the Marine Corps, and it can be used as needed in the future. And is that in the plans? Your plans is to make sure that that sukkah and perhaps more sukkahs get used? For that, answer, for that answer, I'd like to defer to Ari. You know, the, the, the military has a concept called force multiplier, where you figure out how to take the resources you have and multiply them even, even, even further in the field. And that's what, uh, what I'd like to do with this, uh, with the providing uh, what I call community sukkahs. You know, I was thinking about, uh, even before I, I got the email from Rabbi Todd, that Sukk is really a wonderful opportunity to bring uh, Jews together. And, uh, you know, the whole holiday is uh, one of the themes of it is unity as symbolized by the Arbor Minim and the, how each, each one of the species represents a different type of Jew. Um, and uh, I think the Jewish community, the Jewish world, we do a great job of enjoying Sukkot with our friends and family. But I think we could do more in going and reaching outward. And I think, um, you know, in Kiruv, one of the most popular strategies in Kiruv is to open up your home during Shabbos to bring people in. And uh, it could be challenging to, to get them through the door. But during Sukkot, you have this strange-looking hut in, in your yard. Uh, or you, if in the case of community Sukkot, you create it in a, in a public space. And, and it's, very, it's visible and it's intriguing. And so it's really a magnet uh, for, to attract Jews of all backgrounds to come and uh, experience the joy of Judaism and, uh, and also the meaning of Judaism and the meaning of, 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 uh, of Sukkot. 
And what uh, better way than to actually bring it to them? Exactly, exactly. So, um, so uh, in addition to, first of all, the, as the rabbi mentioned, this sukkah is going to have a life, an ongoing life. Every year it's going to be deployed somewhere. And what the military does is that they match up <clears throat> the chaplain rabbi with a sukkah. And uh, we have to look at where else we can, we can provide that for next year. Um, so in addition to whatever help I can do, I want to also invite any, any listeners who want to uh, sponsor a sukkah for the military next year to uh, email me at uh, ari at jewishidealab.com, A-R-I at jewishidealab.com. Um, so in addition to that, I'm exploring with a couple of major Jewish organizations the idea of creating one of the, what I think would be one of the largest community sukkahs in the world, and having that as really a, as an epicenter of, of joy and meaning during, during sukkahs. Because, you know, I really think that uh, we need to show how, you know, the Torah lifestyle does have a lot of joy in it and is very inspiring. Um, and this is a wonderful way to, uh, to do it. You know, I remember uh, being um, by the Kotel and by the Western Wall in, in uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and they have actually uh, a community sukkah uh, right there in the Western Wall Plaza. And that, that sort of, I think, maybe planted the seed in my mind of how wonderful this would be to do something like this in America. What would you say to people, and I guess this is a question for either Rabbi Chrysler or, or Ta'ari, what would you say to people who would like to reach out, let's say, overseas to, to the Marines, to the servicemen, and they don't know how to do that? Whether well, yeah, I, w- I would answer, become a military chaplain. We need more rabbis in the Navy. Interesting. And Ari, what do you say? Your question is how how they can help. Well, one is, is sponsoring the uh, sukkah for for next year, uh, and again they could they could email at ari at jewishidealab dot com. Um, if they're if they have smicha, they can look into becoming a chaplain. They can contact Rabbi Official Todd at Perchei uh, and They have a website, um, um, and those you know those are two ways that that I can think of. Rabbi, you have plans to be anywhere for Hanukkah. Uh, well, last, last Hanukkah, I was in Afghanistan, but I don't think it'll be happening this time. I've got a pretty busy three months coming up, so I think I won't be going forward for, for this coming holiday. I'd like to say one more thing, if I may, one more observation, if I may. Of course. Austerity, geographical austerity. Helmand Province, where it was, it's a desert. And the people you work with, the members of your unit, and other units, you're all in the same mission, and they, you kind of feel like family. You feel like family. And it's a whole different reality than anything that can be imagined out in the, the civilian world, the non-military world. But it's there. And you can't do it. If you're a rabbi, you can't do it unless you're walking with Hashem every minute of the way. So while I was doing my work for God and country, I was also being meet Hazek. I was achieving my own new spiritual insights and and depths and heights because of the. It's like heat boat to do it on steroids when you're out there, and you got to go with Hashem. And it's an amazing opportunity to enrich your own sense of of Yiddishkeit and spirituality. Absolutely, and Rabbi, your story and your words today have definitely inspired me. And definitely inspired those Marines that you encountered and everybody who heard the shofar that Rosh Hashanah with you, I'm sure, was inspired as well, in addition to everybody who had an opportunity to eat in that sukkah because of you. And so for that, you know, we thank you. And Ari, you have some, some last words to add? Um, well, I just wanted to, 
first welcome the rabbi back. He recently, just a few uh, days ago, returned from Afghanistan, and I think the sukkah is still over there on its way back. Um, and uh, and also, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, we're open to other other supporters who want to sponsor uh, sukkahs. Um, and um, I want to you know give a bracha to all of our uh, Jewish servicemen and all U.S. servicemen who are who are who are deployed overseas that they should be safe. And uh, and and we we wish them uh, yes, all the Rabbi, success in the world. Tell them that, that they are all in our thoughts and our prayers as well. I shall do so. And thank you for that. He's the note. Thank you so much, and thank you both for joining me today. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back right after this.
Something to talk about, everybody. I'm your host, Randy Wartelski, and I thank you so much for joining us here at the Nahum Siegel Network. We've been talking about reaching out to your fellow Jew and how one person can make a difference in the lives of others. And with me in the studio now, I have a very, very special woman, Mrs. Didi Benel. Didi Benel is the Educational Director, Student Programs at the Ramaz Upper School. She's a 26 year veteran of the school. Didi has taken students all over the country, including New Orleans, and she'll tell you what she and her students did in Whitwell, Tennessee, and how she got the opportunity for her students to meet Gilad Shalit and his army platoon. Didi, welcome to the show. Randy, thank you. Um, I know you started with Whitwell, so certainly I'm not going to wind the wheel back too far, so I will address your question, and then I'll just have to do what I do best, go backwards. Um, Whitwell, Tennessee, and all that I do happens because of students. And uh, when one hears the number 26, it's almost overwhelming. But it really is the students at Ramaz, and I'm going to assume students everywhere, who really are the motivational force between everything I ever aspired to do and eventually was able to uh, turn them into reality. Uh, Whitwell, Tennessee happened because of the film Paper Clips. Um, we had some graduates involved in it, and one of the sponsors was an alum of ours as well. And off we went to see it, an ordinary night at the movies. No popcorn, just a good night at a fun flick called Paper Clips. No sooner had we finished watching the film, and anyone who hasn't seen it, I urge you to see it, uh, when the kids said, so Mrs. Benel, when are we going? And that's how things seem to always start. I get the lump in the throat, and they they have this exuberance, this energy, um, and it's wonderful because it's missing all of the limitations that we as adults seem to have. Our fears, our concerns, and that's the purity, the, the, the absolute essence of the beautiful part of working with kids. Uh, they don't leave you alone. And we did make contact with people. And, of course, well, there's no T in that. Oh, uh, right. If you're from Tennessee. If you are from Tennessee, there's no T. Off we went, um, not that easy. Uh, How many students did you take? Uh, I believe, if I can think back, we were high. We were 18. And this was it, approximately how long ago? I'm trying to think back. It's easily about 10 years ago. I stalled for a moment because time lapses, and I, I don't seem to sense it or feel it. Uh, we did go, 
And what was interesting about the makeup of the 18 students is that each, in his or her own way, was uh, carried with them the message of the Shoah. They didn't wear it on their sleeves, so to speak, because the new generation knows stories and has seen movies, but doesn't do, let's say, what our grandparents did. And, and many of them were named for uh, relatives who had been murdered in the Shoah. They went with, they were so enthusiastic because here they understood they were going to a town. Linda Hooper was the principal. Yeshiva University ultimately awarded her um, a doctorate, an honorable, right, a doc, right. an honorable doctorate of source, whatever the correct title is. She was a fascinating woman because what she understood is that there was something wrong in Whitwell. And I say it with uh, in tongue-in-cheek because that was only part of the cultural differences that we tried to understand as we went into this all-white Appalachian town. Um, and let's just remind the listeners who may have not seen the movie or haven't seen the film in, in a long time, what did the students in the high school do? Thank you. I always assume, I make these assumptions that everybody always knows what I'm talking about. The students of that town, um, again, when I, I don't mean any cultural bias at all, it's not my style, but it indeed was a small community, an Appalachian town that had never really met a Jew before. And what Linda Hooper found is they really had no diversity at all. This is not that there was something about having seen a person of color or a person of a different faith. It simply was the locale out in the mountains. I mean, for us, for the New Yorkers, our, our major, our plane stopped in Chattanooga. I mean, our kids were flipping out. They wanted to see the Chattanooga choo-choo train. That's what I was thinking. And then uh, that's what it was. And then the next day, one of the pastors from Whitwell, and it, there was an elegance about him. His van arrives, and off we go. We changed time zones from Chattanooga to Whitwell, which was another, you know, is, was remarkable. I mean, this is a really a New York kind of crowd. We have a problem. We honestly do not understand that there are many other states to the United States of America. Well, for the moment we arrived, the students who starred in the film, so it was definitely over 10 years ago, they were seniors at that time. And it started with the encouragement of learning about the Shoah, and they did a magnificent job. They became famous for what they did. As a matter of fact, the car, the authentic car that actually transported Jews to the death camps, because they... The rail was, car. The rail car. There was a journalist who heard about it. So it, it was getting a lot of press. And here were my kids, kids to kids. And uh, we were excited to meet with them. And we took one Rabbi Mayer Moskowitz along with us. And anyone who knows Rabbi Mayer knows that he's a jubilant, exciting, lover of life person. But they also don't know, many of them, that the rabbi saw his own father murdered in front of his eyes. We kept some of this as our kind of private secret. Because, indeed, we were there to meet wonderful American youngsters who felt that learning about the Holocaust was something that they had to do. The monument is magnificent. I know that many youth tours stop now to see it, but we were really the first. From an Orthodox Yeshiva Day school, this was big time. There was dialogue, there was conversation, and then, of course, we went into the car. And we looked at the clips and understood that with each clip, a letter had the clips been that the students collected. Yeah, and there were 11,000, by the way, because we know that the statistics of the number of people murdered are beyond our own victims. Right. And so it was more global, as you'd say. But then when we finally meet in the library, the moment, um, I guess, that became the stellar moment of the trip for us and for those youngsters is after seeing 
they were teenage rapping. They were learned. They went to the the car. There was the tears when we sat down around them, and then they began to introduce themselves by their Hebrew names to share with these youngsters that they indeed were the inheritors, the living inheritors of this brutal legacy that we carry with us that has affected all of us for so many generations. And there was a silence in the room, but this time it wasn't a silence of being awkward. Um, who are you? Who am I? It was a silence of honor and dignity because these children finally said, we now understand that our clips, even with the letters, are not equal to meeting the children who are the living proof of the legacy and the survival. And then when Mayor Moskowitz, who indeed is a gentleman to know, said and told his story, the tears shared were not hysterical teenage tears that were dramatic. They were tears of the authenticity of that collaboration. We then said, please come to New York. And they got all excited, and Linda Hooper was excited. And yes, indeed, they visited us in New York. Wow. They came to our school. They sat in in Judaic studies classes. We went down to the Statue of Liberty because where else do you go when two groups are interested in the symbol of freedom? Right. Down to Ellis Island we went. There was laughter. There was humor. There was teenage camaraderie. But above all, it was enveloped by the brilliance of what they did and the fact that, as one young man said, we're not just clips which we loved and respected, but we are the inheritors of the legacy of our families and our people. The union of these two groups was why when they say, hey, there's a Benel trip, let's go. You know, these are the trips, should I say, the missions, what the children lead me to do. You can't say no. Yes, yeah, so my, my question to you is going to be coming back a little bit. How do you inspire these students to reach out and do something to whether whether it be in I, I know you, you took a trip to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina um, and I'm sure the story that you tell of Whitwell Tennessee is just one among many that you have about wherever you've been with your students my question was going to be how do you inspire and teach the young people to get out there and do something but you're saying for you it's the other way around Yes, it's the other way around, and I must admit, and this may reveal my age, but if there's anyone who went to school with me, which, of course, is my sin of Vermont that I'm a Flatbush graduate, knows me too, me too. Yeah, <laughs> that um, my inspiration really came from the people who are the mentors and the builders of this phenomenal school. And it would I, I would be remiss in saying that when I started out, I was kind of like young and quite impressionable. I met one, one Dr. Noam Shudavsky, Zichron Olivracha, his partner in crime, so to speak, if that would be the way to use, the, if that's an inappropriate term to use, I apologize. Of course, um, Rabbi Haskell Lukstein, because they believed that ultimately the mission of our school is to have children, and the rabbi very much likes to quote, and it's in all of our mission statements. He, uh, the, at the closing of the mission statement is a quote from Isaiah, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And he wants the Ramaz graduates to respond in a like manner and answer as Isaiah did, here I am, send me. So the first mission was really to the Soviet Union. 
I take a breath. Um, what was I doing going to the... And I'm not talking Soviet Union post the end of the Cold War, but before. And I remember Noam saying, no, 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 you'll go with kids. They were 16. And don't go with many colleagues. You really should be going alone to different cities because you can be stronger alone and you can really do more alone. And I remember just nodding and thinking, yeah, this is what you do. Me, it was me a and given. a bunch of kids. Yeah, teenagers, 16. They led me through the Soviet Union from arriving in what was then Leningrad. And I would name the students, but I don't think that that would be politically correct. And we were told we could bring items that were Jewish in nature. And as soon as we were stopped and our luggage was opened uh, and questioned and they went to remove things, it was the kids who stepped forward with all the training and did what had to be done in order to pass, let's say, certain items that were well-received that allowed our luggage to go through. It was the kids. They sang... They taught. We were underground. We went to the underground yeshiva at the time. They spoke to people. They never spoke in the rooms. And as I watched them, I was able to get stronger. Randy, half the time, I really didn't know exactly what train I was getting on or off of. We were there. They were great. There's a strength in youth that makes you capable of doing. You asked if I inspire. If I know they're they're getting it, so to speak, then I'm fine. And what do you think they take away from these experiences? Their own power. Their infinite power. Their power to recognize their own strengths. There are so many times when you hear teenagers are, you know, down because perhaps they didn't make a team or they didn't succeed in a certain class or... But when they go on these missions, they first, it's almost as if a mirror were put in front of them and they understand, well, wow, just my, just the amount of knowledge that I have, the amount of svarim that I handle, like picking up a telephone book, um, my comfort in Hebrew, my passion for Israel. There's no doubt about it. I speak about it. I'm free. I'm open. And so many societies that we traveled in, there were years later that I went back to Mints and Pints with a core group of students only four years ago, crossing borders, now with a supposedly no longer a Soviet Union. And these kids found they can speak, they can reach out, they can change lives just because they can speak Hebrew, because they can open a safer with comfort, because teen to teen there is no match. So if all we have to do is, excuse me, make the arrangements, security guards, raise the funds. You hear that people out there raise the funds. The kids want to go and they come back to respond to your question, knowing without even talking about it, that they found an inner strength, that they can affect change, that they can make others more aware, that they can enrich lives. That has nothing to do with scoring on a team, getting a lead role, getting into a best school, which we aspire for them. That's a given. But we're not a school, I've always been taught at Ramaz, if we don't also educate our kids to be empowered human beings. When Nachshon Voxman was kidnapped, of the many, kids turned to me and said, so what do you think we ought to do? I said, okay, call the press. Let's get down to the United States. I should call the press. They'll listen to me. I remember the sentence. 
And I said, yeah. So the classic line, again, I can't say the young lady's name. She's now a married woman with several children. She said her great line was, I called NBC, and because of me, they came and they did. Wow. So does that mean that we freed anybody? No, and that's to get on to Gilad Shalit. A rupture in the world community who cares about international behavior in terms of breaking the codes of military law, not allowing for visits by the International Red Cross, hearing nothing, kidnapping off of ones. Everyone knows the facts. What could we do? Uh, Not all that much, except more for ourselves. Um, We decided to stand opposite the Iranian mission for five years in what was called a prayer vigil. We were not allowed to make noise. We never wanted to do that at a quarter to eight in the morning with a bunch of teenagers. Um, We handed out informational cards. We tried to raise his name. Uh, We followed the rules. Inherently, it was for us. Maybe that's almost selfish. We just responded in a way that really spoke to our neshamas, our neshamot. I had an opportunity to attend an assembly that you were very involved in where Gilad Shalid and his platoon came and met with an audience of people who had rallied on Gilad's behalf. And in that assembly there were many alums of the school who came back and spoke about what they did. And to actually be able to see that maybe some of their tefillot helped in Gilad's release, or maybe something that they did, a letter that they wrote, was something that you could see as alums definitely resonated with them. Was that your feeling as well? It was, but as alums being somewhat older, they really understood that big adult in the bigger picture... What they did was filling a personal void, knowing that they didn't let, Rabbi Yoshua Baxt always said, let business go on as usual. So in a way, there was a sense of feeling self-centered a little bit, like what I'm doing. You know, we always like results. We're very results-oriented. I studied, I get a good mark. I don't get a good mark, I I protest. Um, I'm a good friend. Why wasn't someone a good friend back to me? We have very results oriented, they understood that this would be uh, an activity that was, as I call it, kind of selfish, that it, it, it took some kind of a hole inside of them and said, you know, I'm stopping my clock a little bit. And that's what it's really about. You know, a clock is an ultimate, the ultimate measuring tool. Uh, meters, uh, timers, blood pressures, everything is timed. I was taught a long time ago, actually, by uh, the woman who runs Beaker Holem at Lenox Hill Hospital, which is something we do during our lunchtime periods, that time is an indicator of sorts because taking time means you're giving time. And if anything, these youngsters understood is that they were taking time from their lives in order to give something and ultimately was giving something to themselves. You know, the Ananili Azmili, I better darn well take care of myself. They love to say they would be late to second period, but God help them if they were. Imanila Atmi Mani, which is a scary thing that we're worried about in terms of a generational style nowadays, that there's a huge sense of the me being the centrifugal force in many people's lives. But most of all, also, you got to get up and do it. I, I have a test. I have a th- all the excuses. What I have found is these children are phenomenal. 
in managing, balancing, and reorchestrating their lives in order to become involved, in order to say, this was, I, tonight there was a, we have this major pantry thing when a kid one day spotted much of the food being thrown out after lunch at school and said, we got to stop that. We have a pantry program to a wonderful pantry that's uptown. Well, you know, Didi, the students look to you for leadership in becoming leaders. And I want to know that last morning that they went to the Iranian mission to daven and to hand out cards for the release of Gilad Shalit, that last morning, what happened to you when they found out that he was released? What did they say to you and what did you respond? Uh, very mixed emotions. First of all, Randy, if you remember, it was around Sukkot time. And I don't know, you want to call this reward? I don't know how people get reward in life. But personally at home, my phone was ringing through that night. We Calls from Israel. There were kids who were doing their year in Israel. Did I hear? Did I hear? Did I know? Did I hear? Um, I, I was overwhelmed by it. And another sense of being overwhelmed is, I know you can all appreciate what morning is like for teenagers. And I'll, I'll get to that last last time out, every time I rounded the bend at 40th, because uh, it would stop at Grand Central and I would get out of 40th and walk. I don't know, maybe it doesn't speak well for me. I always said, oh, no one's going to be there this Meaning time. Meaning when you were on your way to yeah, the mission. Yeah, to the mission, because we would get as far as uh, Grand Central Station. That's how the whole Stanford crowd got involved in this, our commuters, as if they're not commuting far enough at the 6-0-something from Stanford. When they, meet, when they first met me at Grand Central, I said, where are you going? You talk about inspiring kids. They said, well, we take this to... I said, no, you don't. Turn around and go to 40th. Uh-huh. And that's how the Connecticut crowd became... Became the Wednesday oh, morning regulars. It was, it was amazing. And if once Connecticut could go, how could Manhattan not go? And they went rain, snow, sleet. Bitter cold, yeah. Really cold. Um, so the phone was going throughout the night because as anyone, you know, this is, we didn't really know. There were so many missed times of a bargain, of a trade, and the... The enormous uh, moral dilemma that everyone faced in terms of, you know, the trade. But the telephone was ringing throughout the night. And what the kids decided to do is go back one more time. Because we had kind of, after six, five years, people sort of recognized us. There was a janitorial staff that used to wave to us, coffee people. We got thumbs up and other fingers, okay? But people used to... And we went back a last time with the card that was changed. And, what's and it, what had the card said when you used to new, give them out? When we the, used to give them out, it uh, started out with uh, photos of several that we then later found out had been murdered immediately. And then it had only Gilad's photo. And on back, telephone numbers and website addresses to call to protest the fact that, minimally speaking, he had been kidnapped, and two, that there were no visits from the International Red Cross. As the kids said, they felt they had about 10 seconds to say, Gilad Shalit, soldier, kidnapped, illegal, no visits by the International so Red Cross. So now not only, the students, not only are the students going and davening themselves, but they are spreading out cards to countless others, encouraging them to do the same, encouraging them to keep on doing, to encourage others, encourage others, etc. We had cabs giving little toots. But ultimately, the last day, the new card was released, and it said, Gilad is home. Wow. And the few people that had, you know, you pass the same street. Now, mind you, the kids change. They graduate. They change. They, all the be it, didn't really, bottom line, ever really know probably who Gilad Shalit was. They just got excited with us. Right. But we did go that last time as a kind of um, 
ושמחת בחגיך, kind of a feeling uh, of sorts. And these are experiences that change a person's life. I mean, going forward, you know, as we said, these alums, these are experiences they'll never forget. You asked about Katrina. Yeah. Kid motivated, totally. I, one of the, one of the young uh, women who motivates, now teaching in the lower school, because they want, eventually did a book day about, you know, floods and things like that. They came and said, in early September, we're sure you've heard about New Orleans. So, I mean, who didn't? So when are we going? Hmm. And there it was again. I promise That's that you. question that keeps coming back to you. There it was. I said, girls, what exactly do you mean? No, 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 we, we have to go there. And I don't mean this in, to disparage any group or any organization that really followed suit with supplies and visits. I always say that we went when it was very, very wet because it was that Christmas which coordinated that year exactly with Hanukkah because the thinking of the kids, not only would that work for us because it coordinated with Hanukkah and our winter break, but that it would be a time to relieve so many of the Christian missionaries who were there to celebrate and we could just plain, Ramaz, take over. Wow. And take over they did. But it was, because it was Hanukkah, one of the most amazing experiences was going to the, uh, the, it was the ward that had been most damaged and the shul there had been completely destroyed. Those famous images of the Torahs being in rowboats. So we went there to Davin Mincha to light the Hanukkah menorah. And that moment, when you say change children, to light that menorah in that damp, wet shul, having heard that the Sifrei Torahs, the Sifrei Torahs were removed on rowboats. If you want to ask what would stay with the children, that would. Some members of the synagogue came, and when they saw the menorah being lit, they really felt that perhaps new light would yet dawn upon this destroyed shul. And Is this I, the same shul that you just had a reopening? A yeah, how'd you know? Back? Right. Yeah. I just heard that from Eliza. It and, was her uncle who took us around, and she said, so she met me the other day, we were at a wedding, and she said, I have to tell you, the shul opened. So now but, you got to go back. Oh, for sure. Now you got to take those students back, and they got to see the shul up and running. So we, we, we work very hard in the, there's a yeshiva there run by Chabad. We work to clean also the yeshiva and did a lot of work, and to see our kids with masks on their face, grime all over, and not a word from them except, okay, what next? What do we do next? And I remember speaking to several of the students afterwards, and they said, well, we just go back. We sort of entered, and we exit. But these people stay here. And the rest is teku. I'm sure it has stayed with them forever and ever. Didi, thank you so much for joining us today. You you definitely have been inspiring so many young people to be future leaders, and they get their inspiration from you and you from them, and I from you as well. Thank you for joining us, everybody, today on Something to Talk About, and we hope we've given you something to talk about. Let's give them something.